You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host. As always, I'm striving to bring you the best in scholarship and apologetics. We weren't here last week at Valentine's Day and all, and I had originally had a couple of plans to come on to talk about marriage, but unfortunately had a medical incident take place and they couldn't make it, so maybe next year, but I figured, hey, it's Valentine's Day, and... Allie is a whole lot cuter than anyone else out there, so I'm just going to spend the day focusing on her, and I I think that went well, but this Saturday, we're back at it again, and we're going to be talking about worldview thinking today, how important it is to have a worldview, does everyone have a worldview, what is a worldview exactly? And in order to do that, we brought a friend that we made at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary Conference, the Defend the Faith Conference. I was there in January. I was one of the speakers, and we got to go and hear several great speakers. And one of the first talks that we went to was one put on by Dr. Tawa Anderson. He is the chair of the philosophy department and assistant professor of philosophy and apologetics at Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Tawa presents papers regularly at professional philosophical society meetings, has written a number of journal and magazine articles, and is the co-author of a worldview textbook used at OBU, and hopefully soon to be published and accessible to the broader public. A native of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, Tawa earned his B.A. in Political Science at the University of Alberta and an M.Div. in Pastoral Ministry from Edmonton Baptist Seminary, which is now Taylor's Seminary. Tawa served as English pastor of Edmonton Chinese Baptist Church for seven years before returning to school to earn his Ph.D. in Philosophy, Apologetics, and Worldview from a Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. A husband and father of three, Tawa is passionate about equipping the church to understand, explain, and defend the truth of the Christian faith. He has led a project workshops, seminars, and conferences at churches throughout Western Canada, Kentucky, Colorado, Texas, and Oklahoma. Tawa enjoys speaking on a broad range of apologetic topics with particular passion for matters regarding truth, relativism, and postmodernism, the textual integrity and historical reliability of the New Testament, the historical Jesus, the resurrection of Christ, worldview, the need for a project and worldview training in contemporary Christian churches, the question problem of evil or pain, and he blogs of intermittent dedication at tawaapologetics.blogspot.com. So today we'll be talking about five and six on that list today, worldview and the need for a project and worldview training in contemporary Christian churches. So uh, Dr. Tawa Anderson, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you very much for having me on, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it was really great to get to see you at the conference, and we we did thoroughly enjoy your uh, 
mock debate that you had with Gary Habermas, which I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing you really probably don't want to do that one again. Well, I, don't, I think I'm ready for another go-around. Uh, maybe we'll switch roles next time around, though. <laughs> yeah, for those who don't know, uh, Tawa Anderson played the role of Bart Ehrman in a mock debate with Gary Habermas on the resurrection. And show me again, yeah, Gary Habermas is a beast on this topic that you do not want to go up against at all. And if uh, you're saying, well, I didn't get to see that debate, I didn't hear it, it wasn't recorded, it wasn't broadcast, and if you want to see something like that, perhaps next year, well, geez, maybe you should just come to the Defend the Faith Conference. I think that's a good idea, and I think uh, Dr. Stewart and Dr. Putnam owe us uh, a thank you for free advertising for them. It uh, definitely is worthwhile going, and you mm-hmm. can't get the same feel from everything just from the online audio or video. And again, not everything is streamed, not everything is available, so it is worth going. And when you go to events like this, you will meet apologists like Dr. Anderson and myself and Gary Habermas and so many others that are there. And you can just much more regularly interact with them. You and I got to have some good discussions with Allie around as well on various topics to see each other throughout the day and such. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the blessings of being there. Mm-hmm. And all of these guys, I mean, these are some of my heroes, you know, Bob yeah. and Gary Habermas and mm-hmm. uh, Chris Grothos. And they're just regular guys that are happy to sit down and talk with anyone who's there, participant, fellow speaker, breakout session leader. Mm-hmm. They're, they're just good, humble, down-to-earth guys and girls that uh, it's just a privilege to be able to know and serve alongside. Well, that conference was my first interaction with you, and so it, for some other people, this could be their first interaction with you as well. And we know about your academic training, but how did you get to be doing what you're doing today? Who is Tawa as a person? Uh, well, that's that's probably quite a long story. You probably don't want the whole one. Uh, but I guess it begins, obviously, with my journey to Christ to begin with. Um, I was raised in Canada. Edmonton, Alberta is, is home. I grew up in a suburb just outside of Edmonton, Sherwood Park, Alberta. Edmonton's the capital city of Alberta. It's about a million people in the city and surrounding area. A wonderful city. Grew up in a wonderful home, uh, not a Christian home. and Grew up not going to church, not really thinking much about such things. Uh, when I was in high school, I, I would classify myself as a satisfied atheist. Uh, I wasn't a nasty person, for the most part, uh, but Christianity just uh, didn't seem to make any sense to me. I didn't have any time for it. And so it wasn't until my senior year of high school that I was open to questions concerning faith. Uh, and I, I won't bore you with the long story, but uh, over the course of about a two-month period in my senior year, from January through to the end of February, I was on a journey that led me to the cross of Christ, uh, became a follower of Christ, and changed my life uh, entirely. Uh, Went off to university after my junior year in university, got married to my high school sweetheart, and we've been married 19 years now, just about. It'll be 19 years in May. And shortly after we were married, I was doing a poli-sci degree at the U of A. I was also working in a bank and had really enjoyed both aspects. Uh, really engaged in the political scene in Alberta and also really engaged in the banking life and uh, thought that either one of those might be a career, but really didn't have a sense of peace or confidence about what was to come next. I knew some kind of grad school was coming next, but I really didn't know what. And so in the the process of praying through that uh, with Vanessa, it was uh, one Sunday morning in, in, in church, very starkly, there's only been two times in my life that I've heard the voice of God audibly speak to me, and this was the first one. 
and uh, God said very clearly to me, I want you to be a pastor. Uh, and so this was a, as distinct a call to ministry as I think is possible to have. And at that point in my life, I think that sort of distinctness would have been necessary because I would have thought that either I was crazy or God was crazy one way or the other uh, if I'd have gotten that call any other way. Uh, Vanessa had heard the same, the same voice that morning telling her that her husband was going to be a pastor, and so there was that confirmation. Our, our pastor was very enthusiastic and affirmed the call to ministry, and so that's what led me to Edmonton Baptist Seminary the next year to prepare for ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, after graduation, I was privileged to be called as the English pastor at Edmonton Chinese Baptist Church, uh, where it served for seven years. And the congregation when I got there was predominantly youth, and all youth and young adults. The, the oldest person in the congregation was uh, our age. I was 25 when I started there. And uh, so it was high school, junior high, college students, and a handful that had finished college. Uh, very young congregation, very bright con- congregation, very inquisitive, uh, all sorts of questions that uh, they had, um, all sorts of youth that were uh, having doubts and questions about their faith, and it was really in my capacity as the English pastor that I began to get interested in apologetics, and largely it was because I had to, mm-hmm. that I had I had congregation members that, that had questions that I didn't have answers to, and I knew it was my responsibility to at least seek out what kinds of answers there were for their questions. They would bring friends to church from school that uh, were agnostics or atheists and also had challenging questions, and, and so again, it was uh, a, a pleasure, and, and it, but also a responsibility to interact mm-hmm. with them in terms of questions that they were asking. So that was like that was my gateway into uh, philosophical apologetics was through ministry there. I also had opportunity to serve as a part-time uh, chaplain at the University of Alberta, where I got my bachelor's degree. And so I was on campus a day and a half a week, and just always had an open door policy, and I had all sorts of people from all different walks of life that would come and uh, just talk to me about whatever was on their mind, and just mm-hmm. loved it. Mm-hmm. So eventually, in the process of, of ministry at the Chinese Church, uh, just started to feel a desire and a calling to go back to school and perhaps pursue uh, a PhD with a, an eye towards a teaching ministry uh, down the road. And again, in exploring that, that calling, talking with mentors and people around me, uh, was confirmed. And God led me eventually to uh, the Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where I began my PhD studies in 2008, uh, and I kind of had two passions, both of which probably were equal passions at that point in time. Uh, I thought New Testament, I love New Testament, historical Jesus stuff has always been just you know right up my alley, uh, but philosophy and apologetics uh, were also very much a passion of mine. And so I remember one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Sid Page from Edmonton Baptist Seminary, uh, when he was asking me, you know, well, what do you think you would study if you went back and did doctoral studies? I said, well, you know, I really love, I really love New Testament. He was a New Testament professor, so, you know, uh, and he was one of the very influential mentors in my life. Um, I said, I really love New Testament studies. I could see myself doing that. He said, well, is there anything else that you're passionate about? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, I really love, you know, the apologetics, the worldview stuff, the philosophy. And he said, well, he said, if there's something that you love as much as New Testament studies, then do the other thing instead. I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> and I'll never forget his words. His, his words were something to the extent that New Testament PhDs are a dime a dozen, 
and it's extremely difficult to find a teaching job in that area. Um, and so if you have a secondary passion, pursue that one and just pursue New Testament studies as an interest and as a passion, but not as your main area. And so, you know, it's just sort of through weird things that I was led into uh, PhD studies in apologetics, philosophy, worldview. Finished my PhD. There applied for lots and lots of jobs. There was one job opportunity that the job description just fit me like a glove. If I had been asked to write my own job description, this is what I would have written. And it was at OBU, Oklahoma Baptist University. And uh, lo and behold, it was also the only job offer that I got, uh, probably because it was a job that fit me like a glove. And so I'm here now in my fourth year and loving it. Would not rather be anywhere else. This is uh, this has become home very quickly. And so that's kind of, I guess, um, a, a short but long story of how I got into what I'm doing. Yeah, before we get into the main meat of a topic, I'd like to bring up something that you brought out about being at a church and being practically forced to study apologetics because you just had to. There are a lot of churches that seem to sadly not think this is a major need today. What's your thinking on that? Uh, I don't know how churches arrive at that, to be frank. Uh, well, I know practically speaking how they arrive at it. I, I think they arrive at that position mostly through um, fear that, well, maybe I won't be able to find answers for the questions people are asking, and, and so if I pursue answers and there's not answers, then what's that going to do to my own faith as a pastor or as a lay leader? Um, secondly, and I'd like to think this isn't the case, I can understand the fear, uh, but the second part I think might be just laziness, and I sure hope this is not the case, that, you know, looking for answers to other people's questions is hard work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it requires search, it requires time, it requires effort, discipline, um, all in the service of other people, but in my mind that's what pastoral ministry is about. We're about serving others and seeking to bolster the faith of others and help others come to faith, and so I always, I never saw it as an option for myself as a pastor, if people had questions they were struggling with, it was my responsibility to walk alongside them and to pursue, uh, you know, to pursue God's truth in, in response to it. So I, honestly, I don't have a lot of patience for churches and for pastors that think that apologetic uh, responses are not necessary and somehow we can avoid doing this. First uh, Peter 3.15 is exceedingly clear that we are always to be prepared uh, to give a reason to anyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that we have within us. I, I'm paraphrasing. I'm sorry I don't have it open within me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that we're always to be ready, that we're always to have an answer, that when people ask us these questions, it's not a legitimate response of a church leader to just say, well, you know, I really don't know, so let's move on to something else. Or, well, you know, you really shouldn't be asking those questions. No. Anytime we are asked the reason for the hope that we have, we are to give an answer. We are to be giving a response to people. Uh, we see this in the example of the Apostle Paul, that, that he doesn't turn away questions, he doesn't turn away doubts, he responds to them. Uh, he seeks to walk alongside people where they are with the doubts they have and the questions they have, and draw them closer to Christ through, even when necessary, through rational argumentation. And so I always saw that as a responsibility of um, a pastor in the church. Okay, one thing some pastors might think at times also is, or some of you might think is that if you start putting this stuff out in the service that it's going to go over the heads of many people in the church and you're just going to lose them and I'm sure as you were studying you started putting more and more of this kind of stuff into your sermons did you really have a problem with people are saying this stuff is just going over my head I don't get it at times yes uh, 
and this is one of the areas where we always need to be careful not to use technical jargon that is not accessible to people who are not studying in a particular field. You know, if you have a dentist uh, do a guest sermon, you know, a lay leader in the church who happens to be a dentist, and he starts busting out all kinds of dental terminology, well, that's going to go over the heads of everybody, right? We're not going to understand what he's talking about. And mm-hmm. so in Christian philosophy and apologetics, we can be guilty of the same thing. You know, we can say, well, you know, in response to the logical problem of evil, blah, blah, blah. Well, nobody's going to have a clue what we mean by that, right? We need to be able to define our terms so that people are able to relate to it. Right. Now, that being said, uh, I'd like to say two additional things. First, people are a lot smarter than we usually give them credit for. Mm-hmm. People are a lot more able and willing to grasp difficult material if we're willing to work through it with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think if we have the expectation that, look, our congregation members both can and will be able to understand this and work through it with us, uh, where much is expected, much will be delivered. And I think people will hang with us and they'll work through it with us as well. Um, secondly, I think there will be times sometimes that... Um, something that we preach through maybe does go over the heads of some people in the congregation uh, but at the same time that same message is going to reach a different group of people within the church on a level that they've never been reached before in a sermon Hmm. Uh, one of the struggles in the contemporary church is that there really is a disparity there's just a wide variety of people in every kind of congregation and you're never going to hit everybody with the same sermon on the same Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Now, the Holy Spirit will minister to each person that is there on the same Sunday morning, but the words that we say are never going to reach everybody in the same way. And so we shouldn't expect that to, and, and it shouldn't disturb us when it doesn't. Uh, but if we, if we, as it were, now, this isn't intended to be pejorative, but if we, if we tend to lower the intellectual content of sermons just so that we don't lose anybody, I think there's a greater risk that we actually lose more people, particularly those who are looking for a deeper intellectual engagement in their sermons. Yeah. That they're going to start to think, well, you know, Christianity is uh, it's kind of simple, and the difficult questions I have apparently don't have answers because nobody talks about them. Yeah. And I think that's a greater danger. Yeah, Greg Kokor has said, if something I say goes over my goes over your head, don't worry, it might hit somebody behind you. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and I, I like also another thing that you can say is, look, if, if and yeah. I tend to take it this way, if something that somebody else says goes over my head, I say, well, look, if somebody else is saying something that goes over my head, I need to get me a stepladder. Yeah. And I need to get myself up to the level of what is being said, because obviously some people are able to understand it, and so I want to be in that camp where I can understand what it is that's being said. So perhaps the issue is that uh, I need to strive harder. I need to be learning and growing so that I can grasp what is being preached. I've spoken before on here about our church, where we actually have this great idea going on that uh, before the sermon starts, there's given a number that you can text in, so if you have a question during the sermon about anything, you text it into this number, and the pastor comes out the end, and he answers the questions. If there's too many, he says, hey, just, I'll answer some of these online, or someone might say, give a question that's really complex, and say, okay, this is a deep one. I'm going to make a webisode later on this week, and that will address the question. And what I've found is that it, it, it's a great combination that we get in our sermons, men's cursor. I'm in our marriage for much more intellectual one and generally when we've gone to church services 
I've always been listening. I've been seeing videos just kind of half in, half out, thinking, okay, um, I, I wonder what I'm going to do when I get home. Things of that sort. I mean, just pretty much bored theory because, okay, I've heard this before, I've heard this before. But now we go to this church, and my wife's there, and she's not seminary trained. I am, and we're both getting something out of it, and we're both able to discuss it on the way home. I, I think that's the way it should be. I think it's a wonderful model. And another model which is great, and I didn't do this often enough, unfortunately, uh, but you can have, let's say you have an early service, right? Mm. So instead of, you know, traditional 9.30 Sunday school, then 11 o'clock service, let's say you flip that around, have a 9.30 service, and then an 11 o'clock Sunday school. Well, you can have a Sunday school class that is just sermon response. And mm. so you have the pastor in that Sunday school classroom, and people can come if they had questions about the sermon or something bothered them or they mm. have depths related to it. And you can just interact about it. I mean, that's a fantastic yeah. forum to be able to go over the material on a deeper level with people who have um, additional questions on it. Well, let's get into the meat of what we're talking about today Great. with worldview thinking here, which is, in fact, relevant to all this. But before we start talking about what's worldview thinking, we should ask the question, what is a worldview? Yeah, that's a good question. It's hard to know what worldview thinking is without that. Uh, so I would provisionally define worldview as the conceptual lens through which we see understand and interact with the world around us. Uh, so it's, I kind of liken it to a pair of glasses. You wear glasses, I do as well. Mm -hmm. And so it's through our glasses that we're able to see things around us, that we're able to see them more clearly than we otherwise would if we didn't have them on. Uh, but it also, of course, affects the way we interpret the world and the way we interact with the world around us. So our worldview is this kind of conceptual lens, right? So there are answers to questions within a worldview, uh, narratives within a worldview, that affects the way we see things around us and the way that we interact with them. Mm -hmm. Now, who all has a worldview then? Well, a worldview is kind of like a pancreas. You, everybody's got one. <laughs> but oftentimes you're really not aware of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think when you were talking about being in high school and such, and before you started studying philosophy and projects going real deep, it wouldn't have really occurred to you as it didn't occur to me, but you have a worldview, right? Yep, that's fair. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I think when you were giving your definition of kind of like the lens which we see reality, the main introduction I got to worldview thinking years ago was by reading Ron Nash, and it looked like you had a bit of him in your definition. Yeah, a little bit of Ron Nash, a little bit of James Sire as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so both of them looking at worldview, you know, it's about a conceptual construct or a conceptual lens. Uh, it has to do with ideas. I, I take from Sire as well the notion of a heart orientation, right? So it's not just about a rational construct, not just about ideas, uh, but it's more of a fundamental orientation. Mm -hmm. uh, so it and affects the way that our heart is oriented towards the world as well. Yeah, and for anyone who is interested... And I'm about this also. We actually did interview James Sire on this show one time. That was last year on October 4th, and about his life in apologetics. Uh, unfortunately, Dr. Nash passed away before we even got this show off the ground. But his books on this, I'd also highly recommend War of Use and Conflict, for instance. Yep. And, and uh, James Sire's ones are The Universe Next Door, and now more recently, Naming the Elephant. Um, what difference does worldview thinking make? I mean, I always about was where this is how we see reality. Great. Okay. What difference does that even make? 
Yeah. So rather than talk first about the importance of worldview thinking, mm-hmm. I guess we'll talk about the importance of worldview itself. Yes. I mean, okay, sure, it it affects the way we see things, but what does that look like? Practically speaking, how does it affect us on a day-to-day basis? Mm-hmm. So I talk in our book about four different impacts that worldview has on a day-to-day basis. Uh, so worldview influences us by means of confirmation bias. Okay, so the worldview that we have leads us to expect certain things mm-hmm. and focus on certain things more than others. Uh, it affects us in terms of experiential accommodation. So let's say that you and I come into contact with something new, a new idea, a new argument, a new piece of data. Well, what are we going to do with that new thing? Well, by and large, we're going to try to fit it in with what we already know or with what we already understand. Uh, mm. So if uh, you and I come into contact, say, with crop circles, uh, given my own worldview, I'm going to say, oh, wow, some kind of prankster is most likely responsible for this crop surface, okay? Because that's going to fit with my general worldview. I'm not going to leap immediately to aliens put these crop circles here because that lies by and large outside of my worldview. Mm-hmm. So confirmation bias, we tend to look for what agrees with us. Uh, so one of the examples, I'm sorry, of confirmation bias, this is a fascinating study that I read. Uh, you interview two different groups, okay? A group of Republicans on one hand, a group of Democrats on the other hand. You expose them both to two, two sets of studies, uh, one set of studies that talk about the negative impact that minimum wage has upon businesses and the other set of uh, studies showing the positive impact that minimum wage has upon people's living standards. And lo and behold, what do you get? Well, the, the Democrat, uh, the Democrat leaning people tend to say this set of studies talking about the beneficial impact of minimum wage upon people's lifestyles. Uh, this is a reliable set of studies and the other set of studies is unreliable. And it's the other way around with the different with the Republicans. You know, you have two sets of data in front of you, mm-hmm. two different arguments in front of you. Your confirmation bias is going to lead you to emphasize the one that agrees with you. Mm-hmm. You're going to highlight the data, highlight the arguments, emphasize the ones that agree with you, and you're going to tend to minimize or kind of sweep under the rug the ones that don't. So that's confirmation bias, experiential accommodation again. Uh, is just trying to fit new data and new arguments within uh, the worldview that we already have, ways that fit with what we already believe. Uh, Thomas Kuhn did a wonderful job of highlighting uh, how this works in the scientific realm, uh, but it exists in every realm of life, not just science. Um, a third way worldview impacts us on a day-to-day basis is through what we call the pool of live options. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when it comes to explanatory force, and this is particularly important in disciplines like, say, history, and like science. So say we're talking about, you know, what happened to Jesus of Nazareth after he was arrested. Uh, the pool of live options that we have is the, the set of possible explanations for the historical data about what happened to Jesus of Nazareth. So, you know, there's certain historical data that we have in, say, the New Testament Gospels and in some Roman historians and in some extra-canonical Christian writings and so forth. And the question is, well, what do you do with that data? There's a whole bunch of potential explanations, but some of them for us are not live options. That is, we don't consider them plausible. Before considering the historical data at hand, we have already discounted these possibilities. Uh, so one example you could use is from the TV show Psych, uh, kind of a goofy detective show, yeah. where Sean Spencer pretends to be psychic, and, you know, anyways, all that stuff. So in one episode they find a murder victim who has two puncture wounds in their neck and the majority of the blood has been drained from the corpse. 
And Sean Spencer, of course, immediately leaps to the conclusion this must be the result of... A vampire, obviously. Obviously, right? Because for him, vampires are a live option. Mm -hmm. The police detectives, on the other hand, immediately discount that possibility. Why? Because vampires lie outside of their pool of live options. They don't believe vampires exist. And if vampires don't exist, obviously, a vampire couldn't have killed this person. So the vampire explanation is not a live option for the police detective. It is a live option for Spencer. Well, what determines whether it's a live option or not? Your pre-existing worldview. Okay? Mm-hmm. The way you understand the world around you. So when it comes to you know what happened to Jesus of Nazareth after his uh, arrest, for some people, the notion of Jesus being raised from the dead by God is not a live option. It's simply not a possible explanation for the data. Why not? A, God doesn't exist. B, even if God does exist, God doesn't interact with the world. And if that is your worldview, if it's a naturalistic or a deistic worldview, then the bodily resurrection of Jesus by God the Father is simply not a live option. Uh, It cannot be the explanation what happened to Jesus of Nazareth after his arrest. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if one is a theist or at least open to theism, then the resurrection of Jesus is a live option. It mm-hmm. doesn't automatically mean it's the right option. It just means that it's a live option. It's a possible explanation of what happened to Jesus and Nazareth. So the pool of live options, that's the third one. So confirmation bias, experiential accommodation, a pool of live options. And then fourth, worldview is going to affect us in terms of life motivation. Uh, our worldview is going to have certain things within it that define our values, what is important and what is both good and bad. It's a notion of ethics that's very crucial in worldview. Mm-hmm. And so our worldview is going to determine the kinds of things that we hold to be important and the kinds of things that are worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. So all four of these areas, you, you can see that the worldview exerts a tremendous influence upon us on a day-to-day basis, both how we uh, encounter new things and existing things, and also what we actually do with our lives, you know, how we live from day-to-day. Yeah, there are some critics of worldview thinking, uh, James K.A. Smith, who I know you've interacted with some of his stuff, has, has said, On this account, the goal of a Christian education is the development of a Christian perspective, or more commonly now, a Christian worldview, which is taken to be a system of Christian beliefs, ideas, and doctrines. But what if this line of thinking gets off on the wrong foot? What if education, including higher education, is not primarily about the absorption of ideas and information, about the formation of hearts and desires. What if we began by appreciating how education not only gets into our head, but also, and more fundamentally, grabs us by the gut, what the New Testament refers to as cardia, the heart. What if education was primarily concerned with shaping our hopes and passions, our visions of the good life, and not merely about the dissemination of data and information as inputs to our thinking? What if the primary work of education was the transforming of our imagination rather than the saturation of our intellect? And what if this has as much to do with our bodies as with our minds? What do you think about that? I think Smith's work on uh, cultural liturgies is excellent, but I think he sets up an unfortunate dichotomy mm-hmm. that he presents it as it's an either-or, when in reality it's a both-and. Now, in fairness, right. I think that Smith acknowledges that it is a both-and, mm-hmm. and I what he's doing is responding to what he sees as an overemphasis on the intellectual side, and he's trying to swing the pendulum the other direction. Uh, but he walks in different circles, and uh, just to be blunt, I, 
I don't experience that same pendulum swing that he does. I don't see in my circles an overemphasis upon intellectual formation of the Christian, and so I don't see the need to overcorrect in the other direction. Uh, I see it as a both end, not an either or. I think Christian education and discipleship is both about uh, the transformation of the mind, right? Romans 12 and yep. verse, verse 2. 12, 2. Yep. By the renewing of your mind. Uh, it is about the way that we see reality intellectually and conceptually. That That is an integral, essential, non-negotiable, unreplaceable part of Christian formation. But it is also about forming the heart, about transforming our desires and our actions and what he calls our habitus, our, our, our virtues, our habits, our day-to-day practices. It's a both end. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think we can helpfully see the mutual reliance of the one upon the other, uh, maybe with a couple of examples. Of, well, if, if this doesn't work, I'm sorry, this is just off the top of my head, all right? Um, but on the one hand, you can't love something that you don't believe is lovable. Right. Right? So I cannot, uh, I cannot, as it were, fall in love with something that I think is not uh, worthy of being loved. And so if I do not believe that something is right, I think it's difficult for me to see that I ought to do that right thing. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult for me to begin to practice it. Um, on the other hand, so that, that's the hand saying, look, it's not just about the formation of habits in part. We've got to see a reason to change our habits and our virtues in that way. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also not enough just to say, oh, well, obviously that is right and that is good and right behavior or heart formation is going to immediately follow, uh, because that's also not the case. If it were the case, then to be blunt, we wouldn't have an epidemic of young Christian men who are addicted to pornography. Absolutely. Because they know it's wrong, mm-hmm. but they do it anyways. And so mm-hmm. the formation of the right idea, the belief that this is wrong and sinful, has not resulted in an accompaniment uh, change in behavior. So in that respect, Smith is absolutely right. It is not enough. Mere formation of intellect is not enough for Christian formation or for Christian education. Uh, But by the same token, I don't think we need to swing the pendulum the other way and say, all right, so it's not merely about forming the right ideas. It's Mm -hmm. primarily about formation of the heart. No, I want to emphasize the both and. It's essentially about um, right understanding, about seeing the world the way God sees the world. But it's also equally essentially about formation of the heart loving the things that God loves, finding the things lovable that God says are lovable. And again, it's a bold end. Philippians 4 maybe helps us to get at it, right? Uh, where Paul says, and again, I'm paraphrasing, I apologize, where Paul says, therefore, if anything is noble, if anything is worthy, if anything is lovable, if anything is right, then fix your mind upon these things. Right. So you need to see that they are lovable, and then you need to fill yourself with them. Well, that means that you practice them. That means that you focus on them, you think about them, you hold them intellectually as being right but you also try to practice them and do them. Uh, Blaise Pascal as well, I think 17th century um, French philosopher, has something to say about this, where you know, he talks about if you, want to, um, if you want to learn to love the right things, he says maybe you want to start by practicing the right things. You know, act like a Christian, and maybe you will begin to see why Christianity is true. Uh, so I want to emphasize the both and. Um, I, I, I admire and I respect Smith's work. I think it's very valuable. I think it's very helpful. Uh, I just think he swings the pendulum too far the other side. Um, I think his philosophical anthropology swings the pendulum too far the other side. He's reacting against what he sees as a, 
a stark kind of platonic dualism where, you know, some segments of Christianity say that we're fundamentally a disembodied soul and our physical body is irrelevant. And so he's trying to swing the pendulum the other way and say, look, we are fundamentally embodied creatures. And again, I think the, the, the Aristotelian golden mean, if you will, uh, the right place to hang is to hold those two together as a holistic union, that we are fundamentally uh, an embodied soul, that mm-hmm. we are not complete if we are just soul, we are not complete if we are just body. We need to emphasize both of these things, both of these aspects of humanity, if we're going to have a right understanding of who we are, and if we're going to be able to have a right approach to the world. Because it looked to me like Smith was limiting worldview thinking <coughs> to just intellectual matters, and I would say it extends to pretty much... Yep every facet of us. I mean, one parallel I was thinking of, for example, was that on Christmas break, for instance, last year, Ali and I switch out which family we spend Christmas and Thanksgiving with every year, and last year was Christmas with her family. So we go down there, and one of the main things they do on Christmas time, that the men in her family, at least, family, is watch football. And to me, like, this is absolutely pointless stuff, so while my father-in-law and my brother-in-law both value football and will turn it on and watch it, when they turn it on, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to get out my Kinder or get out some portable game or something like that because, to me, this is a greater good worth pursuing than what you all are doing on the screen right there. And that's just as much a part of our worldview, isn't it? Yeah, things that we value, things that we find important. Now, mm-hmm. I mean, I think a part of it, too, is, mm-hmm. you know, God has made us all different with different interests and different passions. Right. And it's probably a good thing. It's a really a good thing. Not everybody's like me. Oh, the world would never get anything done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think the worldview that we hold uh, does affect the things that we find valuable, even in our recreational time, our, our quote-unquote downtime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what you were talking about with us. Uh, with fear, or act before you fear, and such, that we all have to do this every single day. And if Alec and me want me to do something, I say, um, I do it right now, but frankly, I'm just not feeling very loving. You're going to have to wait until I get to where I feel loving, and then I'll go do that. And I'm sorry, you're going to say, look, the trash needs to be taken out right now. I don't care if you feel loving or not. It needs to go. Yep, yep, yep. And I tell you what, Nick, uh, when kids come along, that's, it's, it's, it's tenfold that way, right? <laughs> tell you what, nobody ever feels like cleaning up the puke of a sick child. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That, that, Somebody's got to do it regardless of whether they want to. <laughs> yeah, we have that scenario happen a little bit here back in December when I came down with that stomach flu that was going yep. around. And after that, I was so generous, but I shared it with my wife and my mother both. <laughs> <laughs> they were very thankful. <laughs> uh, oh, yes, the gift that just keeps on giving. That's right. <laughs> and now, you were also talking about the uh, confirmation bias that we have, and I think this is something very important because some Christians listening will be thinking, where, geez, how does this affect me in my day-to-day life? And one instance I'm thinking of is if you go out there and you assume people have a background knowledge like you have with the same basic beliefs, but you're just going to go out there and say, well, here's what the Bible says about such and such, and uh, here's my personal testimony about how this has affected my life. And you go and you give this great talk to someone, and then we say, well, why should I believe the Bible? Mm-hmm. 
that's not part of a question that some Christians might ask. But if this guy is asking that one, and you're not trained in worldview thinking, you're immediately everything you've said has just gone right out the window and doesn't matter a bit in your evangelism. Yeah, and in that sense, you're going to need to build some common ground first. Mm-hmm. Uh, some things that both of you mm-hmm. are able to agree are worthwhile or good mm-hmm. sources of knowledge or sources of truth. Uh, yeah, it's not going to be very helpful. And yeah. look, I tell you what, when I was in high school, I, I actually did have friends that would say things like, how oh, we're concerned for the state of your eternal soul. And I said, well, that's all fine and dandy. I ain't got one, so don't worry. Mm-hmm. Um we've just had fundamentally different approaches to the the world and what they were saying just didn't compute it it didn't even make any sense to me but the Bible says you're going to go to hell if you don't accept Jesus well fine and dandy but A I don't believe in hell and B why should I listen to what the Bible says Uh, it just has nothing to do it's got no place in my scheme, in my worldview, in my understanding of reality Yeah, it's like if someone comes up to me today and says for Quran says, if you do not acknowledge Allah and treat him as the one true God, you will go to hell. Like, yep. Okay, that's nice, but to me, the Quran doesn't have that way to value. And right. what we make the mistake of a lot of times in our evangelism is we assume the person we're evangelizing treats the Bible the same way we do. Which is, so if they did that, they'd already be a Christian. Yep, yep. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Nick. Yeah. Uh, when I was also studying worldview in uh, in Bible college, one thing they told me, and maybe you found this to be true in your experiences, once you study worldview thinking, you never watch a movie the exact same <laughs> way again. Yep. Yeah. And it can be very frustrating to people that you watch a movie with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, you're, that, that again is right. Uh, I love Star Wars movies. I, mm-hmm. I, like the original trilogy best, of course, because they're mm-hmm. just way better. Uh, but look, Star Trek, Star Wars, sorry, is a worldview infused movie. Mm-hmm. It's got lots of worldview implications, and uh, by and large, people aren't aware of them. Mm-hmm. Same with the Star Trek series, uh, Next Generation, uh, mm-hmm. Voyager, the movies. They all make some very large worldview statements. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things you'll hear regularly on Star Trek episodes and in the movies is that human civilizations progress from ancient superstition through to organized religion and eventually the jettisoning, uh, the rejecting of organized religion and the realization that it's just about us creatures living in the universe. Uh, This is part of a very secular worldview that uh, religion is something that we are outgrowing as human beings. It's very front and center throughout Mm -hmm. the Star Trek series, uh, which doesn't make it a bad series. Right. Uh, it just means that it's it's really healthy if you're conscious of the worldviews that are being presented in the popular culture that you're consuming. I think it's actually a very dangerous thing oftentimes if Christians are worldview naive, if they're not thinking in worldview mm-hmm. terms when they're watching movies or watching shows. Mm-hmm. That is when we are most prone to having alien worldviews creep into our own worldview and replace biblical perspectives with anti-biblical perspectives. Yeah, one way this can work out, for instance, is for instance, the uh, well, I think it was Joe Biden who said that something that really helped push forward the homosexual agenda was will and grace. 
in that community yep. because that made homosexuality something likable. And yep. without even coming out and saying, hey, you should like homosexuality. Yeah. Yeah, and Brokeback Mountain as well. Yeah. Uh, a movie that was very well done and very effective and cinematographical mm. techniques that were intended to just draw you in to feel compassion and sympathy for the main characters. Uh, yeah, and absolutely. And again, I mean, it was, uh, you know, by movie standards, it was a good movie, a good TV show. But again, I think a lot of people were just worldview naive when they were watching it. They weren't um, engaged with what they were watching. They were just letting what they watched affect them without even knowing it. Um, and yeah, it, it it changes us. It changes the way that we perceive reality uh, yeah. when we see it displayed. When I was in seminary, Doug Beaumont was one of my professors, and uh, he was very big into playing movies and getting us to think through about what was being said and reviewing movies. And once he had a time where he invited a bunch of students over to watch the Truman Show. Mm-hmm. Now, I came along also because... I'd never seen the movie, and I was interested in what was being said, and so I watched it, and then after we were done, he had a discussion, okay, so uh, what do you think the writer of this film was trying to convey, the author, what message, and we start talking about these scenes, and all these students were seeing all this Christian symbolism in the movie, and I think, you know guys, uh, there could be some Christian symbolism in there, that wouldn't surprise me, but it looks like you're kind of thinking this the writer was writing from a Christian worldview. And that's the first question you have to ask is not what Christian symbolism could you find right. in it, but what is the writer really trying to say? Yeah. Yeah, how are they trying to persuade us? Mm-hmm. Any good, sorry, that might be overstating it. Most good movies mm-hmm. aren't just entertainment value. They're also going to have a persuasive aspect to them. Mm-hmm. Nicholas Wolterstorff has done some excellent work on the notion of world projection mm-hmm. uh, in art, in movies, TV shows, books, and so on. And he emphasizes that, uh, look, a movie projects a world, a possible world or an actual world, that makes statements about either the way things are or the way things ought to be. And no artist is indifferent to uh, what effect their work has upon the audience. Right. They're by and large, even in postmodern art, uh, they're by and large intending to bring about a particular type of response or a particular type of persuade, persuasion uh, to convince us of something. Yeah. Now, when we're uh, looking at this, couldn't we also consider that one of the reasons that sadly Christian movies and Christian music and video games and anything else of that sort can usually be so bad in so many ways is because we don't really grasp this kind of thing and we often think, if we're going to go out here, we're going to give them gospel, we have to spell it out explicitly. And yeah. too often, we assume our own worldview. If you go to these movies and you assume the Bible is true, you think it is, you could get a pretty good movie experience. But if you don't go there, you then the atheist watching and say, well, that was a nice little story, but too mm. bad it doesn't have any evidence for it. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, another this is just one of my pet peeves with uh, Christian movies is that they just tend to be overly triumphalistic that mm-hmm. you know A everybody's got to come to Christ and B yeah, yeah. the Christians have to win you know mm-hmm. even in the championship football game you know facing the Giants that's a, uh, which I enjoyed as a movie it was a good movie uh, mm-hmm. but I think that the downfall of Christian movies by and large is just the triumphalism that they're guilty of okay when we're talking about worldview and worldview thinking how do we go about 
developing our world, we think. I mean, when we first come to the conclusion, some people might be listening to this for the first time, thinking, wow, I never realized I had a world view. Now I'm starting to see it. What now? Well, I think two things. First of all, we want to be able to identify where our worldview came from. So what is our worldview and where did it come from? And for the vast majority, well, for everybody, the, our worldview originally is developed pre-conceptually or pre-theoretically. That means that it develops without us thinking about it. We don't think our way into a worldview. We absorb our worldview from our family, our parents, our, our teachers, our peers, uh, other cultural influences around us. So we develop a worldview without thinking about it. So there comes a point in time when we're able to understand that we have a worldview, and that is when we're able to examine, all right, now what is my worldview, and what are the components of it? How am I oriented towards the world around me? Mm-hmm. Um, and where did it come from? Mm-hmm. So, you know, oftentimes I find, so I'll just use an example. I'll, I'll pick on, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll pick on our, 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 our Christian friends momentarily. And oftentimes you'll find a young Christian who says, well, well, yeah, okay, okay, I have a worldview. Obviously, I have a Christian worldview, and so it reflects the Bible. It comes from the Bible. Uh, and I'll say, well, okay, well, let's just identify some of the contours of your worldview, and uh, we'll find beliefs like this. And, and please understand, we find these beliefs very, very commonly amongst young adults today. Um, if I am a good person, I will go to heaven. Uh-huh. That, that's a very common thing that you will hear expressed by a young Christian. And then, you know, if you push a little farther, well, what does it mean to be a quote-unquote good person? Um, and some of the themes that come out may be biblical in nature, okay, and emphasis on sexual purity and compassion towards the poor. Uh, but oftentimes you'll hear a distinct lack of references to the atonement of Christ and the notion that it's only by the blood of Christ that one can be redeemed in right relationship to God. Mm-hmm. Well, is that a Christian worldview if I'm thinking that my goodness is going to result in my um, eternal salvation? Well, I would argue that it's not. So here we're able to say, well, okay, I have this worldview. This is a component of the worldview. I think it's a Christian worldview. Well, now let's look at it critically. Let's analyze it. Let's evaluate it, and let's see if it really does match up with God's perspective. Here's another one that you'll find frequently within our, our Christian brothers and sisters. Um, if I am faithful to God, then everything will go well for me. Okay, so, you know, if I don't screw around in high school and, you know, I'm in youth group and I'm nice to others and so on, then God's going to make me healthy, wealthy, and wise. And so then when, you know, they uh, are in a relationship with somebody and, and they're boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance or spouse is unfaithful to them well now they question God well God you know I've been good why why is this bad stuff happening to me mm-hmm. or you know they've been what they consider faithful and all of a sudden they come down with uh, a severe disease or disability and they say, God why would you allow this to happen to me I've been good well it's because they've adopted within their quote unquote Christian worldview some quite explicitly non-Christian elements namely that God owes me something if I am faithful to Him. Uh, God doesn't promise us health and wealth and, and abundance just because we're faithful to Him. God oftentimes blesses us in those ways, but not because He owes it to us, not because we have earned it or deserve it, right. just out of His grace. Uh, we're, we're actually promised tribulation and trial and suffering. That, that's what we're promised by God if we are faithful to Him. 
so we shouldn't expect something else. Let's pick on for a moment. I'm sorry, am I going on too long here with this? Oh, no, no, this is fine. We'll pick on our non-Christian friends for a moment, then, all right? Okay. And oftentimes, within a non-Christian, uh, you might hear something like this, okay? Well, my worldview says that we live in a physical universe composed of physical stuff, and that's it, okay? Matter, energy, and the combinations thereof. Um, and then you'll hear them say something like this, but, uh, you know, rape is wrong, and people can choose not to do those bad things. Well, all right, let's then look at this. Let, let's evaluate, and here's where worldview thought and worldview analysis becomes important, right? Mm-hmm. So let's look at how well this makes sense within itself. Um, if we live in a purely physical universe, um, no supernatural things, no spiritual things, just, just physical, material stuff, uh, where does this notion of free will come from? If we are just a combination of, um, you know, genetic material, physical inputs, then the things that we do, it would seem to me, are physically determined. And uh, not all naturalists, not all atheists, of course, embrace this perspective, but I think it's something that if you think it logically through, it follows. That if we live in a physical, material universe, then there is no robust human free will. Uh, So where does this notion of, well, people could choose not to do that come from? In fact, where does the notion of rape being wrong come from if we live in an atheistic universe? Uh, So these are ways that you can then analyze worldview and say, well, okay, first of all, where did my worldview come from? Um, Is it as thoroughly Christian a worldview as I thought? And do the components of my worldview make sense with one another? You know, in a more practical aspect of things, in fact, to show how the examples you're talking about have worked out in our own personal lives, Dennis Frager once did uh, did some research several years ago. We actually read some that was some research about how uh, married couples respond to tragedy, and how so many couples, after a major tragedy such as the death of a child, mm-hmm. can get divorced. Afterwards, if there was one factor that really helped them to stay together, it, it could still be different, but if it really helped them, it was they had a place in their understanding of their thinking for evil. Right. Right. And if you don't have that, then it can be difficult. But of course, to be fair, we do have to say that when we talk about that kind of suffering, the thing about what I've been faithful, why is this happening to me, that shows up in the Psalms constantly. So yeah. when we when we go through that, it's not necessarily that we're bad Christians or anything either, but yep. it is part of our experience. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and you're right, and we should, in a sense, expect it. And we do have a place in a Christian worldview yeah. for an understanding that we live in a fallen world where there will be evil, mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. evil things will happen even even to people who, quote-unquote, don't deserve it. Right? Yeah. Will, bad things will happen to good people simply because we live in a fallen world. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I will also say, though, that uh, within a Christian worldview, the whole notion of people that don't deserve it doesn't really make sense to me. Um, that, you know, ultimately, we are all sinful in the fallen mm-hmm. glory of God, um, and I really have no right or reason to complain if and when bad things do happen to me. Nothing happens to me that I don't deserve. Nothing bad happens to me that I haven't deserved. Yeah. Or, it's only the good things that come from the hand of God that uh, I have not deserved or earned. Yeah. You know, one other thing we should be clear about, when we talk about a Christian worldview, we can often talk about it as if it's this big monolithic thing. And a Christian worldview will necessarily entail some things. It will entail, for instance, that 
you hold the deity of Christ, you hold that he bodily rose from the dead, you hold the trinity, you hold salvation by grace through faith. But from about that point on, it could hold to many, many different things. There could be Christians that hold to inerrancy, there could be Christians that don't. There could be young earth creationists, there are theistic evolutionists out there. You can have many, many different roles on a spectrum, and all of this still can constitute a Christian worldview. Yeah, I think that's a very helpful point to make. That the, mm-hmm. Yeah, there are, of course, non-negotiable elements yeah. within any one umbrella of a worldview. And it's helpful, I think, to go back to some of the ancient creeds, the universal creeds, and identify some of those four components. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, as you said, within that broad umbrella, there can be a lot of distinction and diversity within it. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the struggles in our day and age is the struggle of identifying what is the core and what is uh, beyond the pale, as it were, because frequently you will have individuals who insist that I am a Christian and you can't say that I'm not, mm-hmm. uh, despite the fact that they have rejected virtually all of the core elements of what would traditionally be held as a Christian worldview. They don't believe in a tri- triune God. Uh, they don't believe in a personal, um, objectively existing God. They don't believe in the deity of Christ, that Jesus is both God and man, yeah. uh, God in the flesh. Mm-hmm. They don't believe that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, that the resurrection is just some kind of metaphor or myth or story. Um, and yet they want to continue to call themselves Christian and get very, very upset if somebody says, well, I, I think maybe you're not. Uh-huh. And so that's problematic, right? Yeah. <laughs> And then on the other hand, there are people who will define every element of their brand of Christianity as essential to a Christian worldview. So, you know, you mentioned that, you know, there could be theistic evolutionists and younger creationists. Well, there's some in both of those camps that would say, you have to hold my position, Mm -hmm. or else either you're not a Christian or you're stupid, one or the other. Um, so, you know, a younger creationist could say, well, younger creationism is an essential tenet of the Christian faith that God created in seven days. And if you don't believe that, you are simply outside of a Christian worldview. So we've got problems on both sides of the spectrum here. Yeah. But some that define everything as being essential to a Christian worldview, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. And we have other people who insist that there's nothing that's essential to a Christian worldview, broadly speaking, except for calling yourself a Christian. Yeah. Now, when you talk... Both of those extremes are wrong. Somewhere in the middle is mm-hmm. truth. Now, when you talked about the former group of people who want to call themselves Christians, this can also be one of the great dangers we get when we encounter the cults. Because yes. two guys knock on your door, and they're in these white shirts, black pants, they have these name badges on, says, hi, I'm Elder so-and-so, and this is Elder so-and-so. We're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, well, I'm a Christian. Okay, uh, what do you believe? Well, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, we believe that. I believe he rose from the dead. Oh, we believe that. I believe in the Trinity. Oh, we believe in that. I believe in salvation by grace through faith. Yeah, we believe in all that, too. And they will say they believe all these things, but the problem is, they mean totally different things by the very same words a lot of times. Yes. Yeah. And <laughs> our very first class in Intro to Philosophy every semester, we talk about things that are important in the philosophical method. Right. And asking good questions is one of those essential elements. And another one is definition of terms. And I think both of those come to play here. Uh, so when we have those conversations, I think it's good to ask, 
penetrating questions about definitions. Mm-hmm. What is the content that you are filling that affirmation with? Mm-hmm. Okay, say that you believe in the Trinity, in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What do you mean by that? Do you right. mean that they are three persons, one being, uh, being of the same substance, or are you meaning it more, these are three persons and three beings, all of whom are called God? Okay, Is it triunity or is it tritheism? Uh, you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Well, okay. Is it... Uh, what what do you fill that content with? And here, you're probably not going to have much of a dispute with Mormons, but you'll have more of a dispute with uh, many, many liberal Christians, where they will say, well, okay, yeah, I believe he was raised in the sense that his disciples uh, continued to affirm his importance and his ministry and his mission that they continued on after his death. The community of Christ rose from the ashes and continued to hold to what Jesus and did mm-hmm. well okay if that's what you fill the term resurrection if that's the content with which you fill the term resurrection that's fine but that's not what Christians historically mean by a resurrection it's not what the ancient creeds mean that's not what the early church fathers mean that's simply not what is meant by resurrection belief and mm-hmm. so if that's your content then you have to find your resurrection belief as being outside the boundaries of Christianity mm-hmm. Well, at this point, I can remind everyone that you're listening to Dr. Tawa Anderson. We're talking today about worldview thinking. Now, I met him at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary Defend the Faith Conference. And next week, we're going to have another guest that I met at the Defend the Faith Conference. And that's going to be Justin Langford. And he's going to be talking with us about the question of, are there forgeries in the New Testament? So if you want to hear about that, then... Tune in next week, and you'll be hearing Justin Langford talk about forgeries in the New Testament. For now, we're going to get back to Dr. Tarbaugh Anderson talking about worldview thinking. Now, one of the things you talked about was uh, was the asking of questions. And I'm remembering right now that uh, Ron Nash said that a worldview has to answer five questions, ultimately. And those are the question of God question of the nature of the cosmos, question of the nature of man, question of the nature of morality, and question of the nature of what happens when we die. What do you think about this? Do you agree with it? Would you take anything out? Would you put anything in? Yeah, I, I agree, broadly speaking. There's lots of ways to define the contours of the worldview. Um, so in our textbook, which incidentally, um, IVP Academic has accepted. Uh, we're in the process of refining the manuscript, and hopefully IVP will be publishing it. Uh, later this year, uh, perhaps not until early in 2016, but it is coming out. Uh, so we approach the contours of the worldview through four questions instead of five. Nash uses the five questions. James Sire uses eight. Um, I, I, I like making <laughs> smaller, so we have four. And the four questions that we use, are, they're actually four sets of questions, but four questions that you can narrow it down to. Uh, what is our nature? What is our world? What is our problem? And what is our end? So we start with what is our nature, uh, and this is kind of the existential question, right? What am I? Who am I? Right. Uh, where did I come from? Uh, this involves the question, for example, of uh, what can I know? So the question of epistemology is wrapped up in there. Uh, what can I know? How can I know things? Uh, so what is my nature? That's where we begin. Uh, secondly, what is our world? And this encompasses uh, Nash's first two questions, right? What is the nature of the cosmos? 
And what is the nature of ultimate reality or God? Is there a God? Does God exist? If God exists, what is God like? Uh, the physical world around us, what is it like? Um, are we in a metaphysically uh, unitary or dualistic world, a monistic or a dualistic world? Um, if we live in a, a physical universe, is it ordered or is it chaotic? Do we have free will? Uh, what type of free will do we have, compatibilistic or libertarian? So all of these questions wrapped up within that broad question, what is our world? Uh, what is our problem is, is kind of a unique one. Some have this. N.T. Wright uses it, I believe. Um, and this is the notion that all worldviews, all human civilizations, recognize that there's something screwed up about our reality. Uh, there's mm -hmm. something messed up with us as human beings, something messed up within the world at large. And so identifying the nature of that problem is a core aspect of worldview. And again, a lot of people, they're not conscious of their answer to that question. But when you ask the question, you know, what do you think is wrong with the world around us? Once people think a little bit, you begin to uncover what their worldview is. So what is, what's our problem? What's wrong with the world? And then fourth, what is our end? And we have kind of a dual connotation to this. Uh, the one connotation is Nash's last question, where do we go when we die? Okay, what happens after physical death? What is our end? Okay, our final destination. Uh, but also, what is our end in the sense of our function or our purpose? It's sort of the Greek notion of telos here. Um, what is it that we are for? What is the meaning in life? Is there any purpose in life? Mm -hmm. What What is the chief end of man, as it were? So if you want to narrow down that last question, you could say, look, the Christian world, you answer that question, is very aptly expressed in the Westminster Confession. The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever, right? So we have both aspects of end there, to glorify God. That's our purpose. That's our function. That's why are we here. And then what happens when we die? To enjoy him forever. That is our destiny after death. Now, I've uh, surprised a number of atheists before when we've gotten the question about God, and they, they start dismissing theology, and I've said, actually, you also have a theology. You might not realize it, but you as an atheist have a theology. And I take it you'd probably agree with that, wouldn't you? I suspect so. It worked out for me a little bit what you mean by that. What, what I mean is, for instance, you have some beliefs about the God that you yeah. don't believe exists, and... Based on those beliefs, you in fact do conclude that he doesn't exist because you could, for instance, say, if God exists, God would be all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving. But there is evil in the world. Therefore, God does not exist. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right to say. So, yeah, in that sense, the atheist has a theology. They have an understanding of God, um, mm -hmm. obviously God that they don't believe exists. Um, and even if that's unconscious, I think they do have that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And it, it's amazing that we should consider how much the idea of the problem really drives a whole lot of these other issues. Because when a problem of evil does come up, I always stress too that a problem of evil isn't just a question I have to answer. It's a question you have to answer as well. Everyone has to explain the world that we're in somehow. And what really motivates us many times could show how we answer that question because for people like you and I the problem is sin we need to repent we need to get our lives right and so we're out there doing what we can with the gospel meanwhile someone from a more atheistic viewpoint will say the problem is really ignorance we need more scientific education and we get more scientific education our technology will improve we'll be able to feed the hungry more care more for the poor when people know things better through science they will live 
better lives. And so where are they out for proclaiming? Scientific education. Not that you or I would have a problem with that, but for them this is fundamental because this is the solution to a problem. That's right. Solution to the problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and at an even deeper level, of course, I, I, again, I think the atheist has, you're right, that everybody needs to address the problem of evil. And the fundamental problem, I think, for the naturalist, as also for the Hindu, incidentally, is to articulate how exactly something can be called evil. Right. But we don't have that issue. It, it's mm-hmm. easy for us to acknowledge why something is called evil. So it's contrary to the character and the will of God. Mm-hmm. But within an atheistic framework, it's a little bit more difficult. What is it that makes something evil? Is it just human agreement? Well, if there's not universal human agreement, then can we say that that thing is evil? Mm-hmm. Um, if it's nearly universal human agreement, you know, is that sufficient to establish it as evil? Well, if so, then what about the people who don't agree that it's evil? Is it still evil for them to do mm-hmm. such a thing or not? Yeah, uh, I think you have to think difficulties. Yeah, one of the problems that we often do have is that we really don't think about evil enough. It is a problem, and it does have to be dealt with. And if we're going to be be informed Christians in the world we live in, we need to know something about that problem. Yes. So let's get into kind of asking that kind of thing because you talk about asking the questions. If we're forming these worldviews and we're getting at it, let's suppose we're looking at that question, like say the question of God. What kinds of questions should we start asking ourselves? Um, well, partly it depends on, on who we are and what it is that we believe already. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the questions that I had to be asked when I was not a believer is... Um, why do I exist? Why am I here? And is there something after my death? One of the existential crises that I had as a youth was just the sense of utter dissatisfaction with the notion that my physical death would be the end of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing on the other side of death. Right. Believed that was the case. Mm-hmm. Believed that when I died, that would be it. But I also just had this inner thought, well, that just can't be. Mm-hmm. And when it wasn't, well, that just can't be, it was, well, that really sucks. Well, that, that's <laughs> terrible. I wish that weren't the case. And so there was this, this, this inner existential angst or um, you know, tension that I had. I didn't mm-hmm. want the answer to be what I believed the answer was. This is what Clifford Williams would call an existential reason for belief in God, ultimately, that we have this yearning, this desire mm-hmm. to persist past our physical death, which I think is nearly ubiquitous to all human beings, at least initially. It can be, it can be hammered out of us, but mm-hmm. it's there, I believe, um, innately within us that we desire to live on past physical death. Uh, I think it's part of the way that God has created us. But um, we have that issue. So one of the questions to ask myself when I was in that situation was, well, you know, why do I believe that, you know, death will be the end of me? Is mm-hmm. it possible that there could be something something more? Uh, when you were starting to talk about that, I couldn't but think of C.S. Lewis and the argument from desire. Yes. They keep talking about that, this idea of there has to be something more than this. And one of the greatest disappointments you can have in life is if you go after something that you think is the ultimate, be it sex, drugs, or rock and roll, and 
you get to it and you find it doesn't deliver you the ultimate, yep. then it leads to great disillusionment. And you could keep trying to do or get that thing in various different ways every single time hoping it will scratch that itch that you've got. Yep. And Lewis's point is that as much as these things can be good in themselves, they're never going to give ultimate satisfaction. Yeah, and the, the notion of that always missing that something more mm-hmm. is what drives us to seek something transcendent mm-hmm. that can satisfy that, that, that hunger that's always there. Yeah. Could it be that a lot of times Christians are sadly afraid to examine their worldview as well because they don't want to go down the path of doubt which yep. is usually condemned in the church yeah and again I think it's very sad that uh, it gets that strong condemned in the church I mean obviously mm-hmm. there, first of all there are different ways of doubting right mm-hmm. there's the and I can't remember the passage in the gospels but you'll recognize it uh, you know the father that brings his son to Jesus and the son has a epileptic fit Mark that, 9 Mark 9 there we go mm-hmm. and uh you know, the father, can can you heal him? And Jesus says, uh, you know, do you believe that I can heal him? And the father cries out, yes, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Yeah. Right. So here we have the expression of doubt that is couched in uh, a situation of faith. Right. So I believe, but I really have questions. I really have doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the typical situation, incidentally, that I faced um, in the Chinese church. That I would have youth, young adults that. You know, I, I believe I'm a follower of Christ, but man alive, does this ever pose a problem for me? I really don't understand this. I just can't see how this can be. And I'm really doubting right now. Um, so that that's one type of doubt. There's another type of doubt, of course, that is a, a much more kind of um, a hard-headed or hard-hearted, uh, skeptical doubt. It's just like, yeah, God can't be. Um, I don't believe that God is. Mm-hmm. I don't think God exists. Well, that, that's a different type of doubt. But nonetheless, um, I think by and large in the church what we experience is people in the first category of doubt. Look, if they have the second category of doubt, they're not going to be in the church. They're not going to be talking with the pastor. Right. Uh, but lots of people have that first kind of doubt, and I think it's just a shame. It's a tragedy. It's not just a tragedy. It's a travesty. It's a sin that those kinds of people are condemned or told mm-hmm. they ought not to have doubts like that. What honest, conscious, rational Christian has never had a doubt about their faith. Right. You should be one, because I don't think they exist. Yeah. Uh, everybody has had doubts at one point or another about some element of their faith in God. Um, whether it's just a simple question of, am I really saved? Well, that's a doubt. Am right. I really saved? I'm not sure I'm really saved. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a, you know, could God really love me still, even though I screwed up again? That's yeah. a doubt. That's a question. Okay? So... You know, if the doubts are on a different level, why should they be condemned any more than those ones are condemned? You know, how can it be that Jesus is both God and man? You know, I just don't understand that. Well, what's wrong with that question? What's wrong with somebody yeah. wrestling with that doubt? That's an excellent question. That's a great thing to be wrestling with. Yeah. Uh, Get, Gary, the people are condemned for that. Yeah, Gary Habermas has spoken many, many different times on the topic of doubt, just as he did at the Defense of Faith conference, and. So many times when you said, okay, show of hands, how many of you people have doubted X? And it's amazing how many people will raise their hands. And I'm sure yeah. there are many more people who would want to raise their hands if they don't want to say anything. And yeah. he's talked about having a list of uh, never doubters. 
which uh, he says has two people on him. He says, actually, it says liar at the top. (laughs) My sense has been with doubters that I think doubters are just wonderful because when someone comes to me and they're really doubting things of Christianity, I say, that's great. And why is that so great? Because when you start doubting it, that tells me you're taking it seriously. Yeah, yeah, Mm. yeah. And it also tells me that, first of all, I mean, from my perspective, if we are going to ask questions and have doubts, mm-hmm. if we entertain those questions and try to answer those doubts, God is a God of truth, and God is a faithful God, and God is going to guide us to his truth. If we're seriously and honestly asking questions, I think God is going to guide us into his truth. Right. So I don't think we have anything to fear from asking questions and pursuing those doubts. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that trust, uh, that faith, that this is who God is and how God works. Um, I think that when people are asking those questions and expressing those doubts, well, what's going to come out on the other side? What's going to come out on the other side is a believer who's even stronger in in God um, and in their witness for him and in their ability to help other people who are walking through similar doubts and questions. Mm -hmm. And when we instead punish without what we're pretty much doing is either creating Christians who will be shut down entirely and mm-hmm. unable to evangelize for a kingdom or else we are showing them the doorway to atheism. Yeah. Yeah. And so the original question, right, was should Christians ask hard questions of their own faith? And I think you and I have both made it clear the answer to that question is yes. We, we should. Um, yeah. Actually, I was talking with a colleague here at OBU yesterday and no sorry it was on Thursday and we were just mutually affirming that one of the joys that we had no it was yesterday I'm sorry I get my days mixed up Uh, one of the joys that we have here is being able to encourage uh, sometimes to force our students to ask hard questions of their own faith Mm -hmm. context which is nurturing to the development of their faith Mm -hmm. you know as Christian philosophers our desire is to see our students grow in their love for God, that we are to love God with heart and soul mm-hmm. and strength, and so we're seeking to help them love God with mind by mm-hmm. asking the hard questions of their own faith, not with the desire to undermine or to destroy their faith, but rather with the desire to see them come out on the other side with a stronger faith that is more rationally grounded um, and it, it can again be more winsomely and rationally shared with others. Yeah. And we also have to remember these uh, doubts that we're talking about, mm-hmm. that they shouldn't just happen for Christians. Everyone with every worldview should have doubts about their worldview and be yeah. learning the best way to address them. That's an excellent point that Timothy Keller makes in his book, The Reason for God, where in the intro to it, and Timothy Keller has a wonderful ministry in New York City, oh, a yeah. Presbyterian church, where... Uh, you know, and you'd asked earlier about, you know, do you ever preach and it goes over people's heads? Well, look, if you've listened to Timothy Keller preach, uh, he does such a tremendous job of making apologetics accessible to everybody, but mm-hmm. challenging to everybody as well. So his right. is just amazing. He's yeah. anointed. Um, God is using the yeah, man. I, I, I recently read his book on prayer because mm-hmm. my pastor recommended me because I said, I want a good book on prayer. I don't want someone with a lot of fluff and it's such. He gave me prayer, and I ended up telling a friend, I loved it, and I hated this book. I loved it because it ta- it has so much good information, so much good stuff I learned from. And then I hated it because it showed me how much I was screwing up in so many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
you were going on about uh, anyway, everyone yeah, having doubts. Yeah, yeah. The introduction to the reason for God, he lays out that you know he has a lot of skeptics and very intellectual folks in New York City that come to his church, and they will express questions and doubts to him. And one of the things he emphasizes is the dual nature of doubt. He says, I want Christians to question their own faith and to ask the hard questions, to admit their doubts and bring them out into the light. Mm-hmm. He says, but I want the same thing for my skeptical friends. That mm-hmm. far too many skeptics are just hyper-confident and won't entertain any questions. They, they don't want to think about their non-belief uh, right. any more than Christians want to think about their belief. So he says, I want skeptics to doubt their doubts and I want Christians to doubt their faith. Uh, mm-hmm. And obviously, again, Keller's going to have the same perspective as you and I, because his belief is that in doing that, both the skeptic and the believer are going to be led into a deeper faith in Christ. Mm. Yeah. Now, at this point, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is supported by people like you. They're just listeners who get a benefit out of a podcast and want to support it. And we could use your support. And now, how do you give that support? Well, there are a number of ways. One way is you can go to our new website, deeperwaters.ddns.net. And in, in fact, I'm there right now. And there's a uh, link of a, in, on the front page where it says, Help support the Deeper Waters Ministry through a donation or purchase. Donations can be made at this link. And now when you click that link, it will take you to the ministry of Risen Jesus, which is the ministry of Mike Lacona. Now, have you gone to the right place? Yes, yes you have. As I've got a little note that says, if you make donations through this link, please email me or Debbie Lacona and let them know so they can make sure your tax-deductible donation goes to deeper waters. Because they do support our ministry, and if you make a donation there, and especially if you become a monthly donor, which we'd really appreciate, then you just email me or Debbie and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They will make sure we get it, and that is tax deductible as well. So, yeah, you can write that off on your taxes. And also there's a link that you can purchase through Amazon books there that uh, I've written. There's also a link that you can go to the Amazon store and purchase books that I talked about on a podcast or books that I've written. One of the latest ones I'd like to, to know about is one I wrote on the Apostles' Creed because at our church, we read the Apostles' Creed regularly. And I want to make sure that church members could have a reference guide for the Creed. So I wrote the book, A Creed for the Ages, about the Apostles' Creed is just a commentary going through the whole creed. I really encourage you to check it out. These books, they don't cost a lot. They're, they're reads you could probably read in an evening or so. So if you want something quick, go through and get them. Probably the only exception that is the uh, Problem of Evil book that uh, I did a dialogue with an atheist. That, I understand, is a little over 500 pages long, so you're not going to read that one in a night. <laughs> and now, uh, <clears throat> also, at a, we ask that you just support us prayerfully if you can't do anything else you can go also and give us some encouragement as well if you really like this podcast go to iTunes and leave a good review of it trust me that that makes my day I'm sure Tarwa can agree with this that if you get a compliment in the field or something of that sort it really makes your day yep. and we really need to have that kind of thing now uh, Tarwa do you have any 
organization you'd like people to support as well? Well, I'll tell you what, if you're a high school student and you're thinking about college, I want to encourage you to look at Oklahoma Baptist University. You can go to our website at www.okbu.edu. Uh, you can find my faculty page there. Uh, there's only one Tawa Anderson I'm really easy to find online. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also, I, I will mention this, if you're interested in uh, master's studies in apologetics, uh, we have a brand new, it's going to launch this fall, uh, a new MA, a Master of Arts in Christian Studies with an apologetics track uh, that can be done fully online. And you can complete it in as quickly as a year if you're really dedicated, uh, but you can take two, three years to finish it as well. And that will be launching this fall. Uh, we've just had that approved by the Higher Learning Commission, and we're looking forward to launching that. So if you're interested, we, we have, uh, obviously, our Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy, and there's an apologetics track within that philosophy program as well. And so lots of opportunities here. We're one of very few schools in the country. I believe there's about three schools in the country that have um, apologetics programs at the undergraduate level. And so we're one of the very few on that front. So I just encourage you www.okbu.edu. Yeah, now, when we're talking about encouraging even atheists to doubt their doubts, I, I notice this a lot of times when I'm interacting with atheists online, such that if you talk about a book that deals with their position, you can get so many different responses. Well, geez, that guy seems biased to me. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, of course he's biased everyone who writes in position is biased or just utter dismissal which I, I find so dis discouraging when that happens because I say look you tell me about a book that argues against my worldview that you think I should check I guarantee you as soon as I read about that I'm going to the library website clicking seeing if I can find that book and order it and say, look, I can go into a bookstore, a secular bookstore, go to the New Testament section, the historical Jesus section, and I can buy anything that I see there, and I'm not troubled by it. That's what you do when you're confident in your worldview. It seems the uh, inability to really read anything that disagrees with you really shows a lack of confidence in your worldview. Yeah, and there's also, this is one of the things that we struggle with uh, as a teacher at Oklahoma Baptist University, because there, there's a, a balance that we strive for. I'm, I'm sure we don't find it most of the time here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're responsible for teaching. We want our students to engage diverse ideas, including thinkers that uh, disagree with us and disagree with them. Uh, but there's only so much time in a semester. There's only so much that you can have students read. Mm -hmm. So what do you point them to? It's a, it's a difficult trick. But you're absolutely right that, you know, we can't be afraid of engaging with mm -hmm. thoughts, whether verbal or written. Mm -hmm. uh, opponents and neither should other people. And right. look, most Christian philosophical works are biased because mm -hmm. all schools are biased. Well, why are we all biased? Because we all have a worldview. Right. And our worldview does affect us on a day to day basis. So, of course, what we write is biased. But that's not something that invalidates an argument that somebody sets forth. Look, I've read every word that John Dominic Crossan has ever written, I have read. Mm -hmm. And of course, John Dominic Crossan is biased in what he writes. Does that invalidate what he writes? No. Yep. It means you can understand that he has a bias, and so you can point sometimes to why he comes to the conclusions he does, but you still have to interact with the argument. Mm -hmm. He sets forth an argument. It's not just enough to say, well, of course he said that. He's a such and such. Well, no, interact with the argument. So what if he's a such and such? That's just an ad hominem. Interact with the argument and show why the argument is poor, 
rather than just saying he only says that because he's a believer. Yeah, when I've interacted with unbelievers, I've lately taken to the tack of asking, okay, when was the last time you read a work of scholarship that disagrees with you? And honestly, I can't remember the last time I got an answer to that question. Mm. And that is something that is very concerning about that. Yeah. Although I suspect that we would find the same thing with the average Christian in the pew. Yes, unfortunately. Yes, they read something that they that disagree with them. Mm-hmm. Not be able to think of it either. Although here, I mean, they, they actually, if they did think about it, they probably could, because you know they read uh, opinion pieces in the New York Times and whatever else, uh, and they also you know watch movies and watch TV shows that have worldviews that are uh, contrary. Mm-hmm. But they they're not thinking in those terms when they're reading that stuff, so they don't uh, they don't realize it. Yeah, it really is unfortunate. And I also think, Nick, that this is uh, really a mark of a somewhat anti-intellectual age that right. we live yeah. And this, again, is on both sides of the spectrum. I think it's one of the influences of postmodern theory mm-hmm. that uh, has affected people, uh, one of the aspects of which is the, you know, the decreasing confidence in the existing of truth. Well, if there is no truth, then, you know, uh, I can just have my opinion. It doesn't mean my opinion is true, but it also means I don't have to consider other people's arguments because they're just arguments expressing their opinion. Well, mm-hmm. I already have my opinion, so I don't need to read their opinion, and there is no truth for us to arrive at together anyway, so why bother? I was listening today to the latest Unbelievable broadcast, and someone wrote in a question, wrote in in response to something else. They weren't asking a question. They were saying, like, you want to know why there are so many people who are putting none down as a religious belief? It's because we live in the age of information. We can Google anything. We can look up all these facts. We got them right there war view, and we can show you that any argument that's in the project argument, even you shouldn't take seriously. And when I heard that, I was like, I- I'm having a hard time not laughing at this. Mm. But it- it's part of a problem because so many people do think because we are in the Internet, we're in the age of knowledge, and... I'm not going to deny, of course, the Internet's a great place to find a lot of knowledge, but the thing is, most of us aren't properly equipped in our worldview prior to know how to sift through that information and know what's good and what isn't. Yes, that's Mm -hmm. absolutely correct. Uh, We were, in one of my classes, we've been watching um, a debate on the resurrection of Jesus, and I better not identify the participants. Uh, I'll leave the participants unnamed. Um, But the skeptic in the debate, at one point um, in the debate, the Christian theist has identified the Apostle Paul and, you know, the passage in 1 Corinthians 15 mm-hmm. as early testimony to the resurrection of Jesus that stems from within five years of Christ's death. Right. His opponent in the debate said, and if you knew who the opponent was, you'd be like, what? Why would he say that? Uh, but the opponent said, you can't do that. Paul isn't writing five years after the death of Jesus. This comes from at least 25 years after the death of Jesus. Well, okay, now, what I want to do with this here is just break it down a little bit. First of all, the skeptical scholar knows full well what his opponent was saying. Okay, what his opponent was saying is that, look, First Corinthians 15 might be written around the year 52 or so, but it's citing tradition that Paul is saying he received from others, and he received it from others in Jerusalem, and the understanding is that he received this material within, at the most, five years of the death of Jesus. Well, the skeptical scholar himself is in print published 
as affirming that as being true, that this material stems from as early as within two years of the death of Jesus. Okay, do you understand what's going on there? So the yes. skeptical scholar is saying something in a debate that is deliberately deceptive, right? Yes, He's, I'm already making a guess about who you're talking about. <laughs> better just leave them unnamed, all right? Yeah. Uh, so he's saying something that is, again, in my mind, deliberately deceptive. Well, what's the problem with that? Now, I mean, you and I, we know the material well enough to know what the Christian scholar was saying. Yeah. Right? How right. about the average person in the audience listening to that debate? Right. Do they know the material well enough? No, they mm -hmm. don't. Right? right? And this is the same way it is on the Internet, right? People are mm -hmm. sifting through, they're finding stuff, so they come across a scholar that says, Paul's material here doesn't come from close to the time of Jesus. It's at least 25 years later. Mm -hmm. And they go, oh, well, I guess that the Christian that said it was within five years was just wrong. Why would they have been wrong about that? They don't know how to question it. And this really is problematic when you're yeah. sifting on the Internet and oftentimes when you're just listening to the public debate. People put all kinds of random, terrible, poorly supported stuff on there and if you don't have the tools, if you don't have the background knowledge to know better, mm. you don't know what to take seriously and what not to. Mm. Uh, now, again, sometimes worldview is going to influence what we do take seriously and what we don't. But a part of the difficulty from a Christian perspective is that, look, by and large, the majority of the material on the Internet is not Christian in origin. And so if yeah. you do historical Jesus research just on the Internet alone, mm -hmm. you're going to find a predominant number of sources that are skeptical and critical in their tone and in their voice. And oftentimes, again, they're going to be setting forth stuff like that, that, oh yeah, there's nothing that dates to within five years of Jesus' death. Well, yeah, there is, and they should know better, and oftentimes they do know better, but they write that and they say that because they know that the unequipped listener or reader can't refute what they are saying and can't place it within a broader context. Mm. So th that's the difficulty with the internet. That's the difficulty mm. oftentimes with debate. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's deliberate. Sometimes it's just, you know, look, we got guys that are, these are both Christians and non-Christians. I'm not just picking on our non-Christian friends here. We got guys that are sitting in their mom's garage in their 40s in their underwear that are writing blogs and setting themselves forth as experts on such and such. When really these are just middle-aged guys in their underwear that have no credentials whatsoever. Uh, but on the internet, how do you find that out? You can't check up on it. You have no way of knowing. Mm -hmm. Anybody can write anything they want on the internet. Yeah. Uh, and they can present themselves as being a historical Jesus scholar, an expert in ancient languages. Mm -hmm. And how do you check up on that? Well, you know, if you've got some of the research techniques and tools, you can check up on it. But the average reader simply cannot. Back in November, I was invited on a show called The Mind Renewed to do a debate with Ken Humphreys. And if you oh, he's fun, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll have to send you a link to the debate. Yeah. Um, but it, for those who don't know, he runs the website JesusNeverExisted.com. Yeah. And so when he gets done with his opening speech and then his opening rebuttal we start the Q&A we interaction with each other and say okay um, Ken Yuba made a claim about the uh, Gospels being historical fiction because I said what's your genre he said historical fiction I said okay the, do you have uh, any uh, scholars that support that I said I've got a list of scholars as long as your arm it's on my website said, okay 
What constitutes a scholar? <laughs> That's when you got a lot of the uh, the uh, twisting and turning going on. And I was pretty much I found that anyone who can use the English language well and can make a comp- comparing argument in, in the list. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that's very uh, telling. I, I think I'll stick with the scholarship of Burridge and the PhD peer review people who actually study in the field. And, I mean, some people will come to me and say, well, geez, Nick, uh, you've, uh, you've got a blog, you've got a website, you've got a podcast, and you're telling people to be skeptical of stuff they found on the Internet. Uh, what about your site? Yes, be skeptical of it. Please mm-hmm. do. Please go and check everything you hear me say. Don't treat me as a final authority. I am not. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember. I believe it was Kenneth Humphreys, and uh, he did a debate with Gary Howard on the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, oh gosh! I I used to look at the debate that uh, William Lane Craig had with Frank Zender and say this is the worst massacre I've seen in a debate. <laughs> Zindler looked like Einstein by comparison, I thought, in that one. <laughs> yeah. It was a it was a very amusing debate though. I, I have to say it was a very unique approach to trying to debunk the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. I've never seen that one before. And I have to say I've never seen it since either. Yeah, yeah. I, I do say this is an example of the ignorance that we have spread through the internet that only on the internet, really, is the idea that Jesus never even existed really taken seriously. And when, I mean, yeah. you say scholars are still debating this issue. No. No, they're not. This one was answered centuries ago. No one is really taking this seriously. Yeah, there's a wonderful book uh, edited by James Bileby and Paul Rhodes Eddy, I believe. Uh, Five Views on the Historical Jesus. Uh-huh. They've got James Dunn and Luke Timothy Johnson and uh, oh, John Dominic Crossan, Crossan and Robert Price and, and I Daryl Bach. Yeah. Daryl Bach, that's right. Yeah, and uh, Robert Price, of course, mm-hmm. the, the incredibly shrinking son of man mm-hmm. or son of God. Sorry, you know, making the argument that Jesus never existed. And uh, I, I love. I think it was Dunn's response, um, or it might have been Crossan's. I think it was James Dunn's response to Price's essay, the first lines are, oh gosh, you mean there are still people who argue that Jesus never existed? Yeah, that was done. I up the dinosaurs, <laughs> but I guess here we are. James Dunn is not exactly an evangelical scholar in a sense, but uh, he's just flabbergasted, utterly flabbergasted that uh, somebody is still trying to argue this position. And, so, and it's does- pretty this does show a way that the worldviews shape us, because usually those who are arguing this, they often set the criteria at really impossible levels. I mean, I've even seen someone who says, look, if you don't have any contemporary writings by 36 AD, then we're not going to be convinced. Like, mm. Okay, try to do that with any other figure in ancient history and see what yeah, happens. Yeah, you're going to have to check it all out. That's right, that's right. Yeah. Although, I, you know, let, let's look at this just a little bit. I guess it, it, let, let's try to defend Robert Price for a moment. Oh, that'll um, be fun. <laughs> this might backfire terribly. I don't know, Nick. We'll see. Uh, let's say that you employ, uh, say, Crossan's hermeneutic of suspicion. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you're going to be skeptical of things that aren't multiply attested and early eyewitnesses and so on. And let's say that you apply this really, really rigorously and strictly across the board. 
Well, Price makes the argument that, look, if I take Crossan's own methodology and I take it to its logical extent, I've done away with Jesus altogether. Mm-hmm. So I'm really just taking Crossan at his word and taking him farther than Crossan is willing to go. But that's Crossan's fault, not mine. Uh-huh. I think there's actually something to be said for that. Yeah. There's another thing that I think you can say in defense of Robert Price. Uh, if you don't go where he goes, and you're going to say, well, okay, we can acknowledge some things as going back to the historical Jesus, I think that Habermas is right, that the minimal facts approach, what you can establish using the most rigorous skeptical criteria, mm-hmm. still gets you God in the flesh raised from the dead. And so the only way to avoid God in the flesh raised from the dead is to do away with Jesus altogether. So in that sense, worldview maybe drives Christ to deny the existence of the historical Jesus. Yeah, you know, this is something that I think the uh, mythicist position is actually being a blessing to the body of Christ. Because I say, just think about this. We've got skeptical scholars like the late Maurice Casey and the still alive Bart Ehrman writing books now defending the Gospels. Mm-hmm. I bet this is something wonderful to have happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ehrman has no patience for people who argue that Jesus never existed. No, I'm sorry, I was going to go on and say he doesn't have patience for anyone who disagrees with him on anything, but that's not quite fair. Yeah. He, yeah. he does have patience for people with different positions if they can defend them well. And uh, yeah, I, this can get us also into talking a little bit about some more issues because um, on the internet one of the leading skeptical scholars and I use scholar very loosely in this case I more prefer him as a prominent blogger in the field is Richard Carrier mm-hmm. who argues that Jesus never existed and he's come out of a post this week I've already written some about it he's come out as polyamorous and uh, the tragedy is, he said, yeah, I, I'm divorcing my wife after 20 years because I've just decided I'm polyamorous and that's my orientation. Now, it, it's amazing how worldview really affects the way we look at this. Because me, from my Christian worldview, I look and say, yeah, this is just being a player, this is just sleeping around, things of that sort. And then when... Atheists are looking at you saying, well, you know, as long as he's not hurting anyone, as long as everyone's consenting, what's the big deal? Yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. No, that, that's right, and worldview is going to have a say on mm-hmm. what is right and what is wrong. That's going to be, you know, both with the question, what is wrong with our world? Mm-hmm. Well, who determines what the standard of rightness and wrongness is? Mm-hmm. And for either a naturalistic or a postmodern worldview, the ultimate determiner of right and wrong is me, myself, and I. Mm-hmm. And if I determine what is right and wrong, you know, I may choose to live in accordance with society's standards in terms of what it affirms as being right and wrong, but I certainly don't need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so really, I mean, how can you respond to that? Well, from within their worldview, you can't critique the moral choices that they're making. Uh, so you have to have a more fundamental critique that the overall worldview mm-hmm. has problems um, and needs to be replaced with a more robust worldview. Yeah, and when it comes to more issues, this is why we can have such difficulty yeah. interacting with people from different per- persuasions. Because we go and we say, "Well, sex is supposed to be only here between a man and a woman in marriage." Where if you don't hold that, then when you look at where that's going on with polyamorous lifestyle, you say, "Well, you know, as long as everyone's agreeing, it, 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 it's no big deal." 
Yeah, you, you've really got competing sources of authority within a worldview, and this is another aspect of authority or, or of view, right? What do you take as an authority in your life? Right. And within a Christian worldview, it's very clear that we take God as authority, and word mm-hmm. is the expression of His authority that we take uh, seriously and as our authoritative God in life. But mm-hmm. look, when I was not a Christian, I didn't take the Bible's word seriously. It was not an authority in my life, nor would I expect for a non-Christian neighbor to take the Bible's morality seriously. Mm. If they are not a believer, I should not expect them to take biblical morality seriously. So this, again, goes back to what we talked about earlier, yeah. with the notion yeah. of finding common ground with them. We can't just yeah. presuppose our worldview and expect that they're going to agree with us. We need to find common ground with them. As I've seen someone say before, we seem to have a uh, 1950s mode of evangelism in a 2015 world. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's fair to say. Yeah. Uh, in the 1950s, the vast majority of people in America still would have treated the Bible intellectually as being the Word of God that was trustworthy, even mm-hmm. if they weren't living by it. They would have recognized that they should be living by it. And as you and I both know, that's simply not the case anymore. Yeah. My sister emailed me this week with a uh, question. She had seen this meme on me, you know, and it has things I've like, uh, them. Don't like guns? Don't get one. Don't like drugs? Don't do it. Don't like porn? Don't watch it. Don't like abortions? Don't have one. Don't want your rights trampled on? Don't trample on someone else's. And she was saying, what do you think I should say to this? Or be, and I sent her back just simple things like, okay, don't like murder? Don't murder anyone. Don't like rape? Don't rape anyone. I mean, <laughs> that kind of, that kind of uh, answer. And thought, okay, that should say to it. And we were talking about this, and she said that, uh, you know, you know, these people can say this is that uh, two homosexuals coming that's a marriage, but it's not going to be in God's eyes. And I said, well, sis, I, I agree with you, but I would really urge you that when you're making your case for marriage, don't use the Bible. Yeah. Because when you're going to people and you're saying, well, the Bible says such and such, well, first off, they're not going to listen to you. And second, they're going to do everything they can to tear the shreds because they probably say something like, okay, so uh, do you eat shellfish? Or what do you think of slavery? And going down those lines, yeah. so if you keep going down that way, you're going to get into other issues that yeah. really get you off track. Speak yeah. it in the language they understand. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Now, the, the difference, of course, and this is what makes it even more problematic in our day and age, it's still an ethical issue, yeah. but that it's a question within the church, where first you have many more liberal denominations that are embracing homosexual marriage and uh, either performing or blessing such relationships. And with them, I think we can and should use Scripture as an attempt to adjudicate the difference of opinion. Right. Scripture speaks clearly on this, then the Church, universal, is bound to adhere to that. Uh, so, But you're right. With our non-Christian neighbors and friends, we, we yep. should be trying to find other grounds on which to talk with them about moral issues, but our brothers and sisters within the church, uh, we, we need to be stressing what the Bible says and mm-hmm. how clearly the Bible says it and how you just cannot get around it. Now, when I meet someone who's willing to learn how to investigate these kinds of questions, I tell them to try and read the best books that you can on both sides of an issue. I mean, for instance, on the Christian side, I think in popular books, one of the best places you can go to are books such as oh, uh, J. Warner Wallace's Cold Case Christianity or Lee Strobar's Case for Books 
and both of those are excellent and the benefit you get from those two in fact is that each one of them will introduce you to scholars in the field that you can go to for better sources. I mean, I say, try and read some stuff on the other side as well. Give both sides a good hearing. Are there any other steps you'd add in to what people are, who are wanting to investigate their worldview should do? Yeah, I would say another thing is remember that as Christians we live in community. Mm-hmm. We're never intended to be lone rangers in our quest for truth. Mm-hmm. And so enlist the companionship of a brother or sister, uh, especially a more mature brother or sister in the faith, mm-hmm. to walk alongside you through this journey. Mm-hmm. Don't go on your own. Mm-hmm. Together. So right. there would be a pastor or a youth leader or just an older couple or an older man or an older woman or mm-hmm. get somebody who's younger but in your estimation uh, just more mature in some respects. Uh, go through the journey together. I, I think it's always going to be more dangerous if we try to do something on our own. It's yeah. more likely that we let it straight. Yeah. And along these lines, wouldn't it be so great if we could have more churches come together and form groups? And, and instead of studying a lot of the fluff stuff we can take, imagine getting together a group from a church that will go through a book by such as, oh, cold case Christianity together. Make it a small group thing where you say, okay, this week we're going to read chapter 5, come back, and we're going to discuss it. And, yep. in, and I think you should have at least one person there who knows the material pretty well, who can facilitate things, make sure things yep. are right. But imagine how much better our churches could be equipped. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's right. And look, there's lots and lots of great things oh, yeah. there. Um, this is, it's getting a little older now. It's probably about 10 years old. But uh, Focus on the Family came up with the Truth Project. A number oh, of years. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic worldview curriculum. It's great to do in a small group setting mm-hmm. with a church group. Um, I've done that with a number of different groups. And I continue to benefit from working through it, to be honest. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and look, we're never going to agree with everything in anybody that we read or learn under. And I don't oh, agree yeah. with everything in the Truth Project. But even where I don't agree, there's lots of food for thought. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of stuff that's just very solid and very helpful. Yeah, I, I'm thinking right now about how uh, Mary and I were out driving once and we went by, it was very recently, we went by a Methodist church and he had to sign out about resurrection. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, and when I was going to Methodist church, resurrection was pretty much what I saw was the event these youth would go out, they'd go get a good concert in, hear a good motivational speaker come back be very hyped up about their faith, excited, ready to do things, and that would last for a week. Mm-hmm. And then things are back to normal. So it seems too often we're just giving our youth motivational pep talks. We're pretty much giving them the just red bore in Christian form. And if they can go up and do evangelism, so we got to start giving our youth something besides pizza parties and concerts only. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand the difficulty that youth pastors and youth leaders have, that A, you want to attract non-Christian youth mm-hmm. to youth groups because you want that influence there. B, you have a number of youth that are there and they're from Christian families, but they're really not interested. And so, again, you want to motivate them to be around and to hear the messages. And so I recognize those difficulties and frustrations. And another one, C, you don't have consistency from week to week in terms of who's there. And so if you're going to go through the Truth Project, you've got a majority of youth that are going to hit maybe 8 out of the 13 lessons, and they're going to miss the rest of them. 
so it's very, very difficult to have a sustained uh, long-term teaching plan in the youth ministry, and yet I think it's essential. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that I think can be very beneficial for any youth pastor to do is to sit down and ask the question, what do I want my average, say your youth group starts in grade six, that's where ours begins, okay? So let's say a youth comes into the, the youth group in grade six, what do I want this youth to look like at the end of grade 12? Mm-hmm. What do I want them to understand? What are things I want them to hold dear? So here, here is my, here's my ideal outcome of the youth group. And then ask the question, and how do I get them from here to there? Right? What kinds of teaching, what kinds of ministries, what kinds of events are going to serve the process of bringing them from where they are in grade 6 to where we desire them to be at the end of grade 12? Mm-hmm. That's what needs to drive the philosophy of a youth group, is having a purpose. This is what we're trying to create. This is who we're trying to create and this is how we think we can go about it. It's never going to go perfectly, but at least if you've got a, a kind of a long-term plan and vision, and it's got to be more of a vision than, well, we want to see them saved and baptized. Yeah. Right? That just doesn't cut it. That's um, part of the reason that we see so many youth that, uh, you know, they're saved and they're baptized, and then they walk away and they never come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't see them again. They're gone before the end of high school. They disappear all the way through college and adulthood. Uh, so I think if we can ask those questions, it's going to help. Now, you've, uh, <clears throat> we're getting <clears throat> close out end time. You've got a book coming out, you said, maybe late next year or early next year. But until then, what are some resources you'd recommend people going to to learn about worldview thinking? Uh, James Sire's books that you've already mentioned, The Universe Next Door, which is in its eighth edition, I believe, and mm-hmm. Name of the Elephant, which he's just come out with the second edition on. Uh, Name of the Elephant is where he works a lot more with worldview as a concept. And uh, the universe next door, of course, is where he compares uh, many alternative worldviews side by side. Uh, Ron Nash worldviews um, in conflict works through tests for worldview truth, and it's very helpful. Uh, I never remember their name. I think it's Sanford and Wilkin talk about eight hidden worldviews, or kind of basically non-Christian worldviews that nonetheless affect many people within the church. Very, very helpful work. Uh, if you want to look on a much deeper and more difficult scale, this is really only for the advanced reader. Just Forewarn you, all right? Okay. David Noggle has a phenomenal book, Worldview, The History of a Concept, where he is working through the origin of worldview thought, worldview as a discipline, and he also works through the impact of worldview thought in various academic disciplines, sociology, psychology, anthropology, the sciences, and philosophy. It's, it's just very, very illuminating in terms of understanding how worldview comes about. I do recommend James Smith's uh, Cultural Liturgies Trilogy. The second one is out, so Desiring the Kingdom and then Imagining the Kingdom. Very helpful, again, with the caveat that uh, I think his philosophical anthropology is unbalanced and he's trying to swing the pendulum too far the other way. Those are some of the excellent works. Um, Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew, uh, Living at the Crossroads. Um, Oh, do I have that name right? I think I have that name right. An excellent book as well. Um, on worldview. Oh. Yeah, that'd be kind of the handful right at the outset that I would emphasize. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's certainly enough to get people excited. I, I, I hardly recommend all of those. I haven't got to read Nagar, but I've under, I've heard him speak for it. It was quite excellent. Yeah, I definitely recommend 
Nash yes. and Sire. Yeah. One thing I can say of Nash is if you go to the website biblicaltraining.org, you can find his seminary courses for free there to listen oh. to. <clears throat> but it's uh, probably getting close to time here that we should be uh, wrapping things up. We've had a whole lot of conversation here, and we could keep going on and on more and more. It's been that kind of discussion. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, good things usually come to an end here. So um, if people have been getting their feet wet a little bit and they really like what they've heard from you, they want to find out more about you and what you do, do you have a blog or a website or anything they can go to? Yeah, I have a blog. Unfortunately, I've really not been very active on it the last year and a half, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's uh, tauapologetics.blogspot.com. Um, I also have my faculty webpage at uh, OBU, so okbu.edu, mm-hmm. and uh, just do a search for me, Tawa, T-A-W-A, Anderson, and again, I'm easy to find. Okay, and for those interested in the website, that's tawapologetics.com. tawapologetics.blogspot.com. Yes, that's correct. Now, with about five minutes left, Michelle, here, do you have a any final words you'd like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience? Just thank you for having me on today and mm-hmm. uh, that are out there, continue listening to uh, Deeper Waters. Um, I appreciate Nick, I appreciate Allie, the ministry that you have, and just appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today. Yeah, I, I thank you very much for that compliment, and no, I don't put him up to say that. <laughs> I, I, th- <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate it, and I appreciated the conversations we had, especially since I really enjoyed it. That's what matters most to me, but um, uh, I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Thank you for coming. And if nothing else, I'll look forward to seeing you in New Orleans next January. I, I would. I certainly hope to be there. And yeah. I'd like to remind everyone that next week we have Justin Langford coming in talking about forgeries in New Testament. For now, I'm Nick Peters.